Yes, come on, that's worth a round of applause, isn't it? Hey church, I'm sure you're looking at me askance going, what on earth did we just do? What? Why, why do we have to read through the whole of the genealogy? Like, first of all, show of hands, who's heard a genealogy read through like that in church before? Some of you, good. All right, those of you who've heard it before, I'm sure you've got it memorised, is that right? Okay, all right. Now, look, guys, I, it, was, it was intentional and not just a challenge for beautiful Lorraine. Um, we want to pray today that we might understand why it's important to have that in the Scripture. We believe all Scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And to demonstrate that, we just read that, okay? Uh, We're going to pray and ask that God would help us to make sense of it. So let's pray. Lord, you are so good, and you're present, and you're the author of this word. We ask, Father, today that it might live for us through your Holy Spirit, and we ask this in his name. Amen. All right, here we go. We're going to dive in. I want to start with a uh, question of identity. Has anyone used one of the new smart passports? Mm-hmm. They're pretty cool. This is, uh, this is Caro. Um, fortunately, she's not facing, uh, because we, we just hopped off a flight coming back from, uh, from where were we? In the Philippines. From the Philippines. Uh, that's about how I felt, I think, at this point in time. And you, you walk up to the line, and normally it's such a hassle, but if you've got one of these new smart passports, it's pretty cool. It's got all your details on it, and a little chip, and you stand in front of it, and you put it in the machine, and it checks you out, and if they match, if what's there and who you are match, the little gate opens, and you're all good to go. It's a wonderful system, basically. And it depends on you having the, your true identity. You have to be who you say you are. And what we're going to do today is we're going to interrogate the identity of Jesus, the Son of God. We're going to see who is this Jesus? Who is this one who has the wonderful Christmas story told about him? Who is he? And so we're going to be following one of Luke's passion points. I said last week he's into Christology, which is looking at who the Christ is, and that's what we're going to be doing today. We're going to be looking at this identity. Along the way, we're going to be trying to put together some of the big pieces of our world. How do they work? How do they fit together? We've got God, humanity, the spiritual, we've got Satan, we've got Jesus, and we've got creation. How do they all kind of work? We're going to see if we can put them together uh, today. So that's what we're doing. We'll start with thinking about Jesus. So Jesus, how does he fit between God and humanity? Where does he kind of fit on this spectrum? If we say that Jesus is God only, we end up with Thor, don't we? No, none of you have ever seen a Marvel movie with Thor in it, is that right? No, okay, well, some of you haven't, and that's okay, Jeanette, well done, but many of you have, and you're just staring blankly back at me. Now, Thor is a god, and what that means is he can fight a big fire-breathing dra- dragon thing, get flung through several walls, and he'll get up and dust himself off, and he'll get back in the fight with his magic hammer. He's not very much like me. My Facebook page reminded me, yesterday I think it was, that it's been four years since I broke my thumb when I fell off my bike. Now that wasn't very fun. The point though is, I'm immensely fragile, and if you're one of these God-type things, you are not. Jesus isn't just God. But, but what's the option? The alternative is to say, well, he's just human. Maybe he's like Gandhi, right? He's a dispenser of wisdom for the world. 
Okay, and whatever you think about Gandhi and, and all the rest of it. But, but he's profoundly human. Well, Gandhi's dead. Okay? He couldn't live beyond the grave. He's just like you and me. Jesus is not just human. Jesus is uniquely, in all of creation, somebody who sits in between both of these. He is the overlap of humanity and divinity, God and man. Jesus is the only person in all of creation who is fully God and fully man. That makes him unique, and it also makes him worthy of our worship. But if that's Jesus, then the question becomes, what will this God-man do? What will this God-man do? We find out uh, in, um, in chapter 3, verse 23, that Jesus was... Th- 30 years old when he began his ministry, we assume prior to this he's been doing carpentry, just like his dad. So what will this God-man do? In order to find out, in order for him to start his ministry, Jesus engages with John. Now, we met John the Baptist last week. Do you remember? He was jumping for joy in his mother Elizabeth's womb. Do you remember that? That was really exciting, right? Well, here we have the two cousins meeting again as adults. But before I bring you to his baptism... I want to tell you a little bit about John the Baptist. Now, John, his surname is not the Baptist, by the way. Everyone knows that, don't you? Uh, What what he was, was he was a man who was baptising. He was baptising, and he was doing something pretty amazing. Baptism up until that time had been a rite for the Gentiles. In other words, it was how, if you were a Gentile, a non-Jew who wanted to be associated with the people of God, you would be baptised. You'd be washed. And so baptism was previously for Gentiles. Baptism was with repentance. So John said, if you want to be baptised, what you have to do is you have to repent of your sins. In other words, to say, I don't want to do that anymore. I'm leaving my old life and I'm heading towards God. It was a baptism of repentance. And it was a baptism for all. So earlier in the chapter, John says, you can't just say I'm Abraham's child in order to be counted as God's family. You need to be baptised, and you need to be baptised with repentance. And fourthly, we see baptism was to prepare the way for Jesus. Because he wanted to say, Jesus came and say, I'm going to make a brand new people of God. It's for Jews and for Gentiles. Everybody will need to be baptised because everybody has sinned. So they'll need to repent. And then people will be ready for the one who will save them. So baptism was all happening with John. And then we see somebody very unexpected turn up at the site of the baptism. Have a look with me. We're in John, uh, sorry, in Luke chapter 3, sorry. Uh, Luke chapter 3, and I'm looking at verses 21 and following. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, Heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now, baptisms have been happening all the time. Lots and lots, thousands of people have been coming out to be baptised. And here's Jesus, and something unique happens at his baptism. We get the Holy Spirit descending as a dove, And we get a declaration from heaven that Jesus' baptism wasn't needed. Why? Why was everybody else being baptised? They're receiving a baptism of repentance. Because they'd done what? 
sinned. And, and yet here we have this amazing declaration. So why was Jesus baptised? Well, essentially, what he's doing is he's saying, he's fulfilling Isaiah 53.12, which says, he will be numbered with the transgressors. So what Jesus is doing is he's saying, hey, folks, I'm like you. I'm human too. I'm going to associate with you in the waters of baptism because I've come to save you. So it's, it's solidarity. It's joining in with the people, not because he needed it. And we know that he didn't need it because it says, you're my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Now God loves you, did you know that? And he's broken hearted by your sin. And so if you and I were baptised without being saved first, the voice from heaven would go, I love you and you needed to repent of your sins. I'm glad you started there. But with Jesus says, no, 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 with you I am well pleased. 30 years into his life, Jesus was still, as he remained for the rest of his life, totally without sin. Now, we notice something extraordinary. The humanity of Jesus means he's involved with baptism. But then we see something extraordinary. Have you heard the church say we believe in the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? And someone might say to you, yeah, yeah, but where's that in the Bible, right? And I'd say the word Trinity isn't anywhere in the Bible. That's something we've made up so that we don't have to say everything. We just say that word and it holds all the meaning for us. But here, at Jesus' baptism, we see the Trinity. Let me show you why. Is the Son of God there? Tick. Is the Holy Spirit there? Tick. Who is the voice from heaven? It's God the Father. Tick. So in the baptism, we see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together at this launching out moment in the life of Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? So when someone says to you, no, 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 how can can you believe the Trinity? And you're going, I don't... Go to the baptism of Jesus and we see Father, Son and Holy Spirit working together to get Jesus started in the ministry. Isn't that beautiful? One heart together. So we see the divinity there, three and one. And we see that Jesus is the only pleasing Son of God. So who's Jesus? The Son of God. Well, we go from there to, uh, to something that I, I had experience with last year. My dad turned 70 last year, and he took us, we, we went away on a holiday together, and Dad said, I'm going to tell you the story of our family. Sit down. And uh, he'd done all this work on our family tree. Has anyone done their family tree? Okay, so he'd done all this work on our family tree, and the reason was to say, I want you to know where you come from, right? I want you to understand all the background. It was great, wasn't it, Carrie? Here's Dad getting really excited. He's holding the uh, wooden spoon and pointing to the screen where he can show us all the... So, okay, this is happening because if you know where you come from, you know who you are, yeah? And I encourage you, it's a, it's a great thing. My ancestors, incidentally, just totally on the side, the furthest we can go back in Australia is that they were married in Cobbity Church. That's pretty amazing. In when, Kerry? 18-something. It's really beautiful. Uh, so we're really excited. I'm a local. Who knew? Uh, but, that, but that's the joy, right, of your family tree. Now... Lorraine very graciously read out for us this uh, genealogy that we we see here in verses 23 to 38. And I'm not going to redo it, but I want you to see there's actually two genealogies of Jesus in the Bible. There's one from Matthew, and then there's one from Luke. 
The one from Matthew starts with Abraham and works back to Jesus. The one from Luke starts with Jesus and works all the way up to someone else who's the big reveal at the end. So let's see. Matthew says Abraham is the most important ancestor of Jesus that you need to know because Father Abraham, right? That's really important. They both include Abraham, but you can see Luke has him in a different spot. When it gets to, because he's working the opposite direction, see, he's going the other way. When it gets to the next person, we know why King David would be included in the heritage of Jesus, because Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the town of King David. Okay, fantastic. So he's descended from the royal king to whom all those great promises were made. But Luke then goes a step further, and he says that Jesus is descended from Adam, the son of God. Isn't this extraordinary? And so for Matthew, Jesus is the ultimate king of Israel because he's descended from Abraham and from David. You've got the one who should rule over the Jews. For Luke, we have the new Adam, the one who is the head of all humanity. He's the new Adam, and he's turned up on the scene because Jew and Gentile, all humanity, will come under his headship. Does this make sense? So that's the reason for two genealogies. It's the reason we went, we went through it. There's actually, who knew? There was meaning in it. How wonderful. But here's the interesting thing. It's one thing to be a new Adam. What do we know about the old Adam? Well, the old Adam failed, yes? And it's one thing to be the new Israel, the new head of Israel. How did Israel do? Well, Israel failed. Israel failed and they wandered in the desert for 40 years because they didn't trust God. Adam sinned in the abundance of the garden. Israel sinned in the wilderness. Both of them failed to be obedient to God. So what we want to do is, what will happen to this son of God? And so we need to test him. And, and I've got uh, some pictures here, some beautiful testing NASA's doing at the moment to return people to space. That's just exciting for me. Here's the thing, though. In order to make this little rocket ship here get up into orbit with real humans in it, you've got to do so much testing. You have to make sure it's ready to undergo all the stresses of re-entry into Earth. Going up, it's, all, it's all very exciting testing. Jesus, as the Son of God, is about to get a workout. He's about to get some testing too. Have a look with me at verses 1 to 2 of chapter 4. After his baptism, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. Now, that might seem like the most obvious thing in the world, but let me, let me make a couple of obs observations. The devil, or Satan, turns up in our story. He hasn't been in the story up till now. And yet, here, after the baptism, there he is. He's suddenly on the scene. Secondly, we observe that the testing must be real. Uh, there's no great temptation if I tell you, um, well, for some of you anyway, uh, don't eat that Brussels sprout. Now, some of you will say, oh, no, I love them. And the rest of us will just go. But for, the, for those of us who it's not a big deal for, who we don't like them, it's no temptation to say don't. Don't eat a Brussels sprout. 
The, the, the reality we have to see here is Jesus in his divinity and his humanity is genuinely being tested. It's not a fake. It's not a sham. There's real testing going on. And because he's, a, he's genuinely human, Jesus has real weakness here. It says after 40 days where he ate nothing, after them he was what? He was hungry. Do you think you would be? As I said to the eight, eight, uh, 8.45 service, some of you will be hungry before I finish my message. Is that right? I can see the hangry people staring back at me and going, get on with it, please. Get out of my way on the way to morning tea or whatever it is. Okay, great. So we know hunger. But here's the thing. Jesus is going to be really tested and he's at, as a physical being, he's hungry. He's probably at a low point, right? And so he's vulnerable at this point. And who turns up? His enemy, Satan. And then you go, that's fine. Will anyone tell me about Satan? Well, we're going to do that right now. Why not? Who is Satan? Satan turns up, as you know very well, in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, look at his first words in all of... He says to the woman, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And that's a whole different sermon. But here's the thing. He's already twisted the word of God. He's planted the seed of doubt. And we know what happens next, don't we? So what's Satan? Number one, he is a deceiver. God is holding out on you. God doesn't care for you. Take matters into your own hand. He's a deceiver. Secondly, in John chapter 8, Jesus is railing against the Pharisees. And he says this. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and he is the father of lies. Who is Satan? Satan is a liar. He will sell you untruth. Thirdly, in John 10, we have a beautiful picture of Jesus set against Satan. Jesus says this in John 10. He says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and to destroy. I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. See the beauty of our Savior there? Isn't that great? But see the deathly, the, the terrible uh, state of life if you join Satan's side. Now, it's not a flip a coin moment to work out whose team you should be on, is it? church. Whose side do you want to be on? Jesus's, don't you? I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. And the only reason we would ever exchange Jesus for the devil is because of lies and deceit. Who's Satan? He's a destroyer. He cannot create. He can only destroy. But where does he fit? We've got God We've got humanity, we've got Jesus. Where does Satan fit in this whole scheme? Well, I want to show you, we are more than merely material. So we live in a spiritual realm, and Satan and demons and angels are in that spiritual realm, along with Jesus and his Father and the Holy Spirit, and you and I. But here's the thing we all miss. Here's the thing we often miss. Satan fits in as a creature into God's world. He is not co-equal with God. It's not the light and the dark side of the force. It's not yin and yang. 
It isn't an arm wrestle between heavenly beings. That is not how it works. Satan is lesser. He is created. He is not eternal. And because of that, because of that, he's quite different than you think. He is real. He is spiritual. He is not divine. He is creaturely, which is a terrible abuse of English. Let me tell you what I'm trying to say. What that means is he's not all-powerful. He's not present everywhere. He doesn't know everything. He is bound by the limitations of being a creature. That's really important to remember. There isn't a mortal arm wrestle between peers. There's a creature and there's the creator. God reigns supreme. And yet, we meet Satan opposed to Jesus. He would be, wouldn't he? The destroyer meets the giver of life. The liar meets the word of truth. We would expect them to be at loggerheads, and that's exactly what we see. So let's go to those temptations. If we look at verses 3 to 4, we see the devil tempting Jesus. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. You see the temptation? Jesus is genuinely hungry. If you're the son of God, notice that goes straight to his identity. The voice from heaven said, you are my son whom I love, with you I'm well pleased. And what is the deceiver's first word? If, if you are the son of God, then you would do this. That's what the deceiver will always do. He'll undermine our identity. So here he is with the son of God. He says, hey, it's no big deal. If you're the son of God, if you were there at the beginning, speak to these stones and make them bread. You're hungry, aren't you? Get into it. There is a genuine physical need that Jesus has, and Satan's going, just take care of it. The temptation is to trust yourself. Do it yourself. Get on the job. You've got all this power. Don't wait for your father's timing. Do it. And Jesus' response is powerful. He quotes from the book of Deuteronomy. He says, man does not live on bread alone. There's more to life, Satan, than merely my hunger. Now, brothers and sisters, this is a word in season for us. Your hunger, my hunger, doesn't always need satisfaction. And we shouldn't trade our hunger for holiness, or our holiness for hunger, I should put it around that way. It's not a good equation to say my appetite will be satiated and therefore it's all okay. That's what Satan's always offering for us to do. Just get on it, solve it for yourself, do it, do it now. And Jesus says, man does not live by bread alone. There's more to life, Satan, and it's found in God's word. The second temptation follows on. The devil led him up to a high place, verse 5, and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It's been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. See, here's Satan, one man alone in the wilderness, and what the devil is holding out, he's saying, hey, I can give you all. I can give you all the kingdoms of the world. Do it. Just bow down and I'll give them to you. And here's the interesting thing. Jesus had been entrusted with a task. Why did he come? Came to win the world, didn't he? To win the world for God. And here's the devil saying, I can give it to you. I can give it to you. The temptation is to shortcut the plan of God. Just do it now. Just bow down. It's not a problem. And Jesus' response is to say, worship the Lord your God 
and serve him only. But I guess the real question is, how is that a genuine temptation? How is it really a test? The answer comes from the reading that we got from Revelation chapter 5. In Revelation chapter 5, we're told here's a picture of the end of time. And we're taken up into the throne room of God. And there are beings falling down and worshipping God. And what they're doing is they're worshipping Jesus because he's the lamb that was slain. That's why they're worshipping him. They're worshipping him because he bought, because of his shed blood, forgiveness for all the people who were before him. He won them by dying. Do you see? And that's going to cause us to praise God forever. It's why we have this thing here. You noticed it before? It's why we have this thing here in church. Why? Because the death of Jesus is the way we are one to him. And so the devil's temptation is to say, well, you want to get from where you are right now to having the whole world worship you. No problems. And Jesus goes, there's only one small problem. My path goes through the cross. And the devil's saying, no problems. Bow down to me now. And what I'll do is I'll give you the outcome bypassing the cross. Do you see? Who wants to die on the cross? It's a genuine temptation. Bow your knee and win the victory. Jesus says, I won't do it. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The third temptation. The third temptation occurs in verses 9 and following. When Jesus said to them, I ask you... Oh, sorry, wrong page. Uh, The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the high point of the temple. If you are the Son of God... See, we've returned to this theme. Throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully... So lift up your hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, he said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus again is taken to this high point in Jerusalem. And the devil says to him, mate, throw yourself down. Throw yourself down. Dare to win. I've I've quoted some scripture to you, Jesus. You're quoting scripture to me. Let me throw you some scripture. You could jump off here and the angels would catch you. Go for it. What's the temptation? The temptation is to seek fame now. If you're standing on the high point of the temple while there's worship happening and you throw yourself down, first of all, how did you get up there? Pretty cool. Second of all, as you come down, angels appear, catch you and set you on your feet in front of the assembled throng. What happens next? People go, oh, that was pretty boring. What's on Netflix tonight? They won't. They would see it's divine. They would lift you up. And what would never happen is you would never be crucified in Jerusalem. Are you with me? So the devil says, win your fame now. Draw people to yourself now. The scripture even guarantees you be safe. Do it. Do it now. And Jesus says, I will not. I will not. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Don't do it is what the Lord says. But here's the incredible thing. I want you to see what the patience of Jesus achieves. Satan says, have some fast food. Satan says, you can fast forward to the end and cheat it. Satan says, you can have fast fame. Israel failed these tests. Israel grumbled when they didn't have food in the desert. Israel, while they waited, worshipped a golden calf. Israel, instead of trusting God's timing were shut out from the promised land and wandered 40 years in the desert. 
But because Jesus is patient, I want you to see this is so beautiful. Because Jesus is patient, very soon in Luke's account, Jesus will feed 5,000 people in the wilderness, won't he? He'll turn a small number of loaves into a feast for thousands. In God's timing, Jesus will eventually be raised from the dead, installed in the highest place in heaven where everybody in all of humanity will bow down and worship him. And we're told in Philippians 2 that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because he didn't bow, because he didn't change bread, because he didn't shortcut, Jesus receives eternal glory. So what do we do? You and I get tempted, don't we? Not personally by the devil, not hopefully picked up and carried around to be presented with temptations. Not the same, but I want you to see what should we remember when we're tempted. We should remember the humanity of Jesus. Why? Well, Jesus was truly human like us. He was Adam, but without sin. He was Israel, but faithful. How did he do it? How did Jesus withstand the devil? He was tested like us. He understands us but he responded for us. Let me tell you why. If you're Jesus and Satan tempts you, what, what could you do? Satan, it's a funny thing. When I talk to the demons, they say, don't send us into the abyss. Have you come to destroy us? That's what, they, that's what the demons say every time they meet Jesus. Jesus could go, do you know what? Do you know who we're going to fast forward to the end, Satan? You. Go to the pit of hell now. That's the authority that Jesus has. He could have done that. He didn't. Why? So that we would be able to stand with him in temptation against the devil. What did he do? How did he resist the devil? He quoted what? Scripture. Because he did that, because he didn't use his divine authority, because he spoke from his humanity, we can join him. We can resist the devil in the same way Jesus did. We need to remember his humanity. And we need to remember what he used. Okay, this is really interesting. I love this tattoo. It's so ironic. Um, North isn't relative, right? This is humanity in a tattoo. I'm determining my own north. I'm working it out. And you're as lost as ever you look at your arm until you pick up something else, right? The word of God, that'll show you where north is. When you're lost, when you're confused, it'll be the word of God. And so my question to you is, Jesus quoted three times from Deuteronomy. Once you get past John 3.16, what have you got to quote back at the devil? How well do you know the word of God? And James 4.7 says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Do you know that? Do you know the armor that you've got in Ephesians 6? Do you know these beautiful truths? And so I want, to say, I want to tell you, knowing God's word is the key to knowing God and resisting Satan. Don't cheat. Get the word of God into your heart that you might stand firm. Thirdly, I want you to remember that there are no shortcuts. There are no shortcuts. This life, should this life bring suffering? Did we sing that before? Yet I will remember, God, you're so good. Anyone sing that with me before? There are no shortcuts. You're not going to skip the suffering, the truly good will take God's time. Just will. We need to be patient when faced with temptation for shortcuts. It's a bit like this. Imagine you're parched and you're in the desert. Here's a pool filled with salt water. As you come to it, are you going to find satisfaction? 
This is our world. You can keep drinking from that pool as much as you want and you will never slake your thirst. You'll die. Don't accept the lie of desirable destruction the devil presents. That's what he says to us all the time. Drink up. It'll, it'll get you. You'll be, you'll be fine. Your thirst will be gone and the more we drink, the thirstier we get. Don't we, church? Don't believe his lie. It's a lie and it will kill you. We need to pray. You'll be surprised to know. There's this wonderful prayer Jesus taught. I'm not sure if any of you have heard of it. Have a listen to this. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily... That's interesting, isn't it? Give us each day our daily bread. Wonderful. And, and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive those who sins. And lead us not into... Imagine if you prayed that every day. It's almost relevant, isn't it? Anyway, it's so funny. We, we, we're so over the religiosity of this prayer that we've lost the beauty of it. I've started to pray this more recently and it, it's just great. God, don't lead me into temptation today. Give me my daily bread. Help me to exalt your kingdom and not build mine. Who are you? What's your true identity? Well, your true identity is that you're a human being. You're in a physical world that is enshrouded by a spiritual world and you have an enemy how will you and I survive? Well, I'd love you to put this scripture in your hearts. Jesus' answer is written that man shall not live by bread alone. May you and I treasure the word of God that we might stand firm in the face of our enemy. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, you are great and awesome and mighty and powerful. And yet, Lord, we thank you for the extraordinary person of your Son, fully God, fully man. Lord, we thank you that he stood firm, that he went through the cross, that he won us at great price, and that one day we'll join all creation in praising the lamb who was slain. Before we get there, Lord, help us to remember what we've learned today, to stand firm against the devil using your word, knowing that we can't survive without it. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.